Hello, this is Theon Coates and this is the Bureau of Lost Culture broadcasting from Soho in London. And as we've said many times on this show, if you'd been here 40, 50 years ago, these streets would have seemed very different. And if you've been out at night, you might have seen a young man, a young dude flitting from club to club, from gig to gig, lending his signature organ sound to many other musicians and over the years collaborating with many, many of them too. Sonny Boy Williams, Rod Stewart, Jimmy Page, Billy Cobham, Spencer Davis, Long John Baldry, Tony Williams, Jimi Hendrix, John McLaughlin, Eric Burden, and many others. And of course, with Julie Driscoll, with whom he covered a Dylan song, This Wheel's on Fire in the 60s, which became a huge hit. After those heady years, through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and still to this day, he formed his own Oblivion Express, recording and touring, with some of his family playing too. And family is a big part of this story. He was born, as I said, in West London, and narrowly avoided being killed in the bombing, spending time out of the city in Yorkshire as one of the many children who were evacuated. His story is quite extraordinary. He's quite extraordinary. He remains very modest, very family orientated, and he's great fun. He's Brian Auger. And we're recording this program because there's a brilliant new archival series, Auger Incorporated, released by Soul Bank Music and IK7. It's a stunning collection of his amazing work over the decades. So I was very privileged, lucky I think, as I often am on this show, to spend time with him. It's a privilege and a pleasure to spend time with you. Thanks for lending us your ears for these hours. Check everything out that we do at bureauoflostculture.com. Thanks to everybody who keeps uh, adding their contributions to our survey about what it is that you guys dig and where you're at. It's amazing. I've just had so many brilliant suggestions for the show and films and books to read. If you haven't filled it in, I'll put a, put a link to it in the show notes and then you can join us too. I'll find out about everything else that we're up to. All right, well, listen, let's leave Soho behind and head out to Venice Beach to meet the man, Brian Auger. Hello, Brian. Thank you so much, man. For an 82-year-old, you're looking extraordinary. What's the secret? Take it day by day and we deal with whatever comes up. You know, if you're an artist and you're pushing ahead, it really is like a growth of your own spirit. I'm just kind of getting to the understanding of uh, what it's all about. I mean, I have had those nights where I looked at the keys and went, you know what, this is impossible. Mm. And then the groove starts out and I go, wait a minute, this is going to be cool. The time vanishes, you know, or stops. A lot of the music comes in my quiet times, kind of like a meditation, in fact. But I think that there's an imprint of the the universe inside each of us to tap into that uh, releases what it is. And so that's when I hear a lot of my music. You've never stopped moving forward. You ne- you've never stopped playing. You've never stopped moving on. And, you know, the spirit moves you or moves in you. And, yes. you know, right the way back, how young that spirit first came into you. And well, you were born in Shepherd's Bush, right? You're a proper Londoner. 
Tell us a little bit about that. What was your family home like? And, you know, what was, even in a way, what was London like? Because we're talking about the war, the Second World War, right? Came into the world during that conflict. Right, right at the beginning in 39, we went through the blitz. It was really funny. My, my parents never showed any fear or anything. They just warned me. My mum would sit me down at that, that age, probably about three. Tell me what your name is right you know where you live <laughs> and that was drilled into me just in case i think you know in case you were separated from them or yes getting bombed the hell out of actually every night but we had a, a shelter in the backyard with a big thick slab of concrete on top of it <laughs> and uh, we would we would go in there and draw the blackout curtains you know and sit there with some tea or and your dad pulled people out of the rubble that's right he'd been uh, wounded in the First World War, and so he knew the ropes. Fighter did come down in in our row of terrace houses, probably, fortunately for us, a couple of hundred yards down the road. He did say that they dug out three people and saved this lady who was down there. Um, and that was it. it. It was like crazy. At one point, I was with my father, and uh, we were walking up Latimer Road, and all of a sudden, I, a German bomber appeared with a fine, an English fighter kind of like strafing him. And my dad grabbed me and said, listen, when you see stuff like that, you know, he says, get in the doorway. It didn't instill a kind of fear in me. The reason was because just across the road where we are, where we were, there was the coal man that delivered these 28 um, pound sacks of coal. And there was a big plough horse, you know, standing, drawing, drawing this thing between the shafts. And it was stationary. And when this damn thing came over, you know, the, the horse reared up. All of a sudden, all, all the coal fell off in the road. <laughs> like that. Inside, in the relative moments of peace in the house, I mean, was it a musical family? I mean, what was the context of your well, sort of, you know, developing... Yes, it was because my mum and dad liked music from the shows. My uh, eldest brother, God bless him, had a collection of American jazz. My sisters were in love with the uh, American crooners, mm. of course, Frank Sinatra and uh, Bing. There was all that going on. We had a piano. It was called a pianola because it had a little kind of like cubbyhole in front and uh, you could put a roll of this paper with the slots in that was drawn across a, uh, a a grid, you know. In the grid was punched a hole for every note on the piano. And so what happened was you pedaled, lo and behold, the piano played. Play a piano. We could, yes, you, exactly. You could play the piano if you couldn't play the piano, basically. Yes. Some sisters and my brother had show me how to hook up the piano rolls then I'd stand on the uh, on the pedals with my chin above the <laughs> and pedal away like some demented cyclist, and all this music was available. Uh, yeah, we had all the operas uh, and all sorts of concertos and God knows what. You know, one day uh, I, I was playing my favourite, which was the William Tell Overture, but I'm but I'm but I'm bum bum, and I something connected. You know, it, I looked at the the piano and there were these octaves that repeated mm. but they were higher up and so i thought to myself well 
if I copy the same notes that playing down here, up here, you know, maybe I can play along with it. And lo and behold, Eureka. That was the start of really beginning to understand, you know, the music. I guess also you're getting the pleasure, were you, of actually, even though you might be only pumping the pedals, of other people's pleasure. Yes, and I heard all these melodies mm. over and over again. And I, I still kind of hark back to that. You're also sort of seeing the structures in music, which of course later in terms of what you did in jazz was, I guess was important, how the kind of building blocks of it, what, of harmony and melody and stuff work right. And this extraordinary thing, thing happens, which is that your, the bombs get closer. Lots of kids were, were evacuated from London, weren't they, to, to the countryside? To they were, they were. Safe. I went up to Badley, uh, just under Leeds, and fortunately, it was, uh, you know, the, I, I was given to a family that were very nice and kind. And the first thing I noticed was they had a piano. <laughs> so it's funny how the universe kind of works these things, you know. <laughs> so um, I used to play from uh, Glenn Miller. The, the, the people were like, oh, this is amazing, man. You know, and this is amazing. And we've got to call our our friends over and go, hey, play, play some piano, you know. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you? Just after my fifth birthday. And uh, we were bombed out, actually. There was one of those flying bombs, you know, V1, because nobody knew where it was going to drop. So your house was totally flattened. Everything was gone. And you're away during this time, right? So over two years, it's a big part of your life when you're five, isn't it? You know. Yeah, I don't uh, remember that those two years in an unfriendly mm. way or anything. I must have been, you know, uh, these people looked after us nicely. Uh, the piano there. And the thing was that when I was taken back to when my dad came, picked us up and took us back to London, and we were in a different house. And I was like, that's what was strange mm. because the other one was gone. I recognized my dad because he'd come up a couple of times mm. to visit us. But my mum had put on some weight and I wasn't sure whether it was her yeah. or not. So I was a bit discombobulated. And then I went into the front room and there was my piano. They saved it from the wreckage? Somehow or other, and it was unscathed. <laughs> Probably had some foresight that you're going to be touring Germany in the future. So. Your piano's there, so, but I'm guessing that by this time, you'd actually, your playing had improved quite a lot. So were your parents a bit blown away when you came back and started playing for them again? Uh, yeah, I think so, because uh, that was my entertainment. Mm. So I want to come home from school and I'd practice mm. until, I, you know, until I had to go to sleep. And sometimes, you know, I suppose they had to suffer through my early practicing days, you know, and I was fine. I was finding some chords and, you know, working a few things out at that time. It was the, the collection of jazz that my eldest brother, you know, had that, that interested me, the swing of it. Great people, Satchmo and uh, Kid Ori and Basie uh, Ellington, kind of the list goes on. So even at the age of seven or eight, you, you were already kind of getting grooved up by some of the greats, right? Sure, yeah. Can you remember, like now looking back down the years, uh, Brian, what it actually felt like when you actually heard those people for the first time? I mean, it obviously kind of set you on fire in some way, right? 
Yeah, I mean, when I heard uh, Oscar play, I was like, how could you have that kind of technique? And and how could you do that kind of improvisation? Mm. And uh, I, I was just besotted mm. with this. So I went to my uh, record store in, in uh, Shepherd's Bush Market. There was a WG stores. Um, the Who used to go there later on as well. You know? but, and I said to these guys, look, I want this thing by uh, Oscar Peterson. I said, no, no, we ain't got that, man. No. About a year later, they called me in when I was looking through the front window and said, hey, come in, you know. So I come in and they they showed me the 78 to Tenderly by Oscar Peterson. I said, wrap that up. <laughs> Because it's important to say you were completely self-taught, weren't you? No formal training. So you were you were teaching yourself by trying to play with those records, or trying to you know trying to trying to find out what was going on with like Peterson's style and stuff. Yeah. So you were touched by the spirit of it, as we said earlier, as well as the you know the actual playing. And then how did you take it like from the house to? Yeah. The street or to the club, you know, what was that sort of bit of the journey like for you when you first started to perform outside the family, outside the house? We used to have a, a bay window and my my mates would sit round the outside and we'd open the windows and I'd, I'd play these music roles, you know, and maybe dabble a little bit on, you know, what the ones that I knew. But um, that was like playing to an audience, you know, and I got... And then I got a scholarship to one of the grammar schools in London. And uh, the first thing I noticed was when we went into assembly, that there was this beautiful Bechstein piano in, in a mahogany case, a half half size piano. And, and uh, some guy would step forward, one of the teachers, and I'd play, oh, thing, Brian, <laughs> we'd all sing, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was kind of like ridiculous. <laughs> And um, I coveted this piano, man. I, I looked at it for, I tried to figure out a way where I could get my hands on it. I, I waited behind one night when I was probably about 12, 13 years old. And um, uh, I saw the piano standing there and I waited until everything had gone quiet. And I realized that everyone had gone home, you know. And so I jumped on this piano and I started to play some winner for that well. Well, the right time. Yeah. Anyway, I was going bad. You know, they sounded incredible on this piano. And all of a sudden, around the corner comes the headmaster with the cap and gown. And he says, Olga, Olga, what the devil do you think you're doing? And I was like frozen. You know, so, oh, uh, excuse me, sir. For, I had my eye on this piano. I think it's just wonderful and I, I wanted to play it so I waited till everybody went home and I, I'm really sorry to you know uh, to disturb you and he said what the devil was that you were playing I said well it's it's called um it's called boogie woogie sir he said boogie woogie <laughs> so he said is it uh Tommy is it popular I said very actually this lady that wrote that you know uh, she's at the top of the, the hit parade at the moment. The hit parade. Huh? He says to me, well, have you ever done a Friday solo then? So I said, well, no, I haven't because I can't play anything uh, in the kind of like classical way because I'm self-taught. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, I see. I said, well, 
Would you like to do a Friday solo? I, I said, well, yes, I'm. all right then, um, Friday morning then. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, what? <laughs> so there's the faculty sitting on the, on the, on the dais up there. You know, they're all kind of men of empire. So he steps forward and he says, this morning's Friday solo will be by Olga of 2A. <laughs> and it's a composition by Miss Winifred Atwell called The Cross Hens Boogie. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'd, I'd steamed into The Cross Hands Boogie, you know, and when I'd finished, there was like a stadium <laughs> roar from the assembly. You know? <laughs> and uh, I got to play the piano, which is fantastic. Your first taste of the pleasure that an audience is going to get, right, as well. There was 200 mm. guys in an assembly. And when they got up and, like, were raving, you know, I, I thought, well, this is good. Maybe I could have a career. My mum and dad wanted me to be the chartered accountant, believe it or not. <laughs> you know, these were steps along the way. And I'm, when I look back, I look at, I, I kind of look at the influence of whatever it is that's up there swirling yeah, like around. signposts on the road, right? Absolutely. I used to play and practice and all of a sudden things kind of, you know, started to make sense. Got into a band with all these guys who were about 45 years old and like, we were, we were playing for dancing in a club. It's main, mainly that actually, you know. And they, they said, right, uh, do you read? And I said, well, no, I don't really. All right, we're going to give you the guitar part. And I started to see, you know, G minor seven, C seven, and A flat minor seven, D flat seven. Wait a minute, you know, and uh, it, it started to click. I mean, that's what they're doing. I began to understand what Charlie Parker was all about. You so, left school when you were 16, right? Got a job, proper job. The the road to being a chartered accountant. I had to I had to do this thing because I had a younger brother and a, and, and a younger sister, and my I had to somebody had to play the rent because my dad was kind of an invalid really. Playing in the evenings, playing in clubs. Yeah, I used to play for different things. I went to see this cottage club, which was just off Cambridge hmm. Circus. Well, they're looking for a piano for a couple of nights, and a couple of nights turned into like nearly two years. Right. They were open until two o'clock, and you could drink until two o'clock. Right. You know, I I had to leave at one to run for the train home. You know, you start the next round of it all, but I, I so look forward to playing. And uh, so this is late late fifties, right? right? The evolution of the teenager, you know, in the fifties, and music coming in from yeah. America. We've got the skiffle thing going on, and. What was it like? I mean, what what was yeah. the sort of musical scene like? You were hitting the nail on the head, man, when you said skiffle. Outside, what was happening was a new generation was was really creeping up and obliterating mm. the old image of the uh, the Brit with a bowler hat and striped mm. trousers. Then the the new uh, kind of generation started to alter right. Britain. And also the music kind of went along with it. So was, there was this, was, there was like an active club scene, was there? Oh, yeah. That club was amazing because, um, because it, you could drink till two o'clock. Everybody, all the best musicians in London would, would make a beeline for it. So um, they were all around. And also the American stars that came into London, you know, 
ended up there. Billy Holiday came in one night with an entourage. The manager, Al, put a, a record on, one of her records on with You've Changed. Song You've Changed, which is a beautiful song. And she started to cry and say, no, no, please, take it off, take it off. I can't. Really? Yeah. A lot of guys played for uh, mm. Basie. Cat Anderson came in. That was my university shot. Seeing these people from the bands that you were loving and listening to on vinyl must have been quite a buzz. It was. And I mean, I would listen to these guys and go, oh, my God, this can't be happening. You know? <laughs> that was a big starting mm. point for me. There was a whole thing going on, wasn't there, in London at the time? I mean, you know, in the West End, in Soho, you know, with the clubs, with the musicians and the fashion. Yeah. I mean, I'm guessing, right, that, you know, you must have been pretty cool amongst your peers, right, because you're playing in these clubs, you know, the, you know, the kids from Shepherd's Bush, you know. Is... I don't think they knew because I was playing, you know, from nine o'clock in the evening until one o'clock and then running for the last train home. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, it was a full day, day after day. Um, but what it did was, it, A, looked after my family, and uh, B, I was just learning all this stuff. And then what happens? I mean, and we're still in the late 50s, moving into the early 60s, right? After playing at the, you started playing at other clubs like the Flamingo. Tell us the story about how you moved really from kind of jazz into R&B more and then also obviously from piano into into organ. I'd, I'd played piano at the Flamingo and I'd play Ronnie Scott's which was about really about two minutes walk from the Flamingo and they were totally different because in Ronnie's <laughs> it was all very intellectual and uh, <laughs> and then I'd go over to the the, uh, the Flamingo and it would be raving people dancing and you know and the audience was you know it was young white kids um people from the islands who were part of the empire at the time you know caribbean also people american soldiers right the american bases that were dotted around us i used to have a great time doing that He said to me, when are you going to buy an organ then? So I said, oh, how dare you, I'm a, I'm a jazz pianist. And he said, well, never mind that. He said, you'd be a natural. You know, so I said, no, I, I can't do that. And uh, about a week later, he rang me up, like, and he said, right, you've got to help me. Georgia Fame, which was his main band, had gone down to uh, Cornwall and laid on the beach. And believe it or not, there was a heat wave at the time in England. He, when he wakes up, he's terribly sunburned and has to be carted away to the hospital. 
And uh, I hadn't realized, but when uh, when Rick Gunnell showed me the, you know, the gigs, it, it was like three a day. I said, well, yeah, I could play stuff because I, no problem. Uh, um, but when do you want me to start then? He says, well, tonight. <laughs> I'd say, oh, um, but I've got this gig accompanying a, an American singer called Babs Gonzalez, who was another nutcase. And, and I've got two 45s for Ronnie. Uh, and he said, I'll get you to wherever you need to go. Just, you know, if you, 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 you. so I said, okay, all right, Rick. And I, I said, where do we start? He said, it's the, at the Roaring Twenties in uh, Carnaby Street. So I went there and uh, at 7.30, just to make sure that I got plenty of time, thank <laughs> God. <laughs> and the guys were setting all the gear up and everything, you know. I said, where's the piano? I said, oh, no, bro, there ain't no piano in this club. I said, you're kidding, right? He said, no, no, but there's George's organ up there, you know. You can play that. You'd never played an organ at this stage, right? No. And so, well, I think one of those moments that the universe comes in and goes, right. bang, feel that. <laughs> you know? So I was, I, I was really like ready to run away. And I thought, no, I've got to, I've, I've got to do this somehow or other. So I went up to the organ and it was an M3 um, Hammond. With all these switches and dials on it, and I thought I looked at that lot and went, I don't know. So what I said, don't panic. Try to dig a sound out of this thing that is as near to Jimmy Smith as you can get, you know. So I tried that and came up with something, and then did the gig. And I thought, wow, this thing's got a lot of power. <laughs> and I ended up. That was the deal, man. I ended up going and getting myself a Hammond and, uh, and there I was. just you playing on your own you've actually got your own outfit right but the Brian Olga trio right? and you're starting playing gigs under your own name right as well <clears throat> you're in this kind of rather fevered environment of in the early 60s there's yeah. a lot of, there's a lot of drugs around were you always quite sort of moderate did you partake in that stuff or was it were you just focused on your music we would play back rooms of the pubs somebody would start a club and uh, of course people would get so incensed with the music oh mate oh, let me buy you a drink i realized i could drink a lot and it didn't bother me the next morning i'd just get up and start you know but then all of a sudden i realized wait a minute there's uh, a day came when 
I was playing and I and my my mind said, play this. And my fingers said, no, we're not playing that. <laughs> and so I went, what? And I realized that there was a line where I couldn't physically do what I wanted to do on, you know, because I was blotto just about. And so I just said, right, right that's it. And when I, I, I don't want to drink any of this stuff and I don't need it. Same with the drugs. So just, to, did you just avoid all that stuff? Because it was, it was almost been all around you in the clubs, right? People, it's early 60s, people doing speed and people smoking dope and stuff like, did you just kind of like, I'm just gonna, I want to do my thing here. That was more or less it, man. But I mean, I saw what that did. Phil Seaman, for example, the one I told you about, man. Um, later on at the Flamingo, Rick Gunnell came down and said to me, look, um, I've got, you know, Phil Seaman outside and he's in terrible shape. I don't know how long he's going to be able to, you know, do anything. And uh, he, he wants to, he wants to sit in with you guys and I want to bung him, you know, 25 or 30 quid to keep him going. And he said, what do you think, Brian? Can he, could just, could he sit in with you? I said, absolutely. Absolutely, you know, and he came, and it's funny. A lot of people that were onto that, that were taking maybe cocaine or one of those kind of drugs, you know, their time wasn't straight. You had to play with them. If that wasn't happening, nothing was happening, as far as I was concerned. And so we did these things every week. Phil would turn up and play a couple of tunes with us, and it would be. You know, I, I'd be very sorry mm. to see him in the, and he would turn up with his snare drum in a brown paper bag and a pair of sticks. <laughs> it got to that level. And um, at one night, uh, he, he was Phil mm. again, and he played it. It was amazing. And when we went into the band room, he grabbed hold of me and he said, I, I, I dreamed of playing like that, you know? And I thought, oh my God. And he says, don't you ever take any of this mm. shit. Uh, don't play around with it or anything, man. He says, you know, uh, and, and that was it. And he'd fallen down in the street in, you know, between these these things, man. And he had, mm. you know, bruises and stuff. Been this whole thing, hadn't there, with, particularly with jazz players and smack, somehow it had become part of their thing, hadn't it? Even though in the end, you know, it kind of was killing them, right? Killing them, wasn't it? Well, yeah, but Miles at one point said to his dad, who had a, a little house out in the back in the garden, a kind of shed, and he said to his dad, listen, dad, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go and live in the shed for a couple of months and don't, any, don't send anybody down there. Don't, I don't want to deal with anybody. And, and got mm. through it and came out the other side. <laughs> Uh, Coltrane was a pretty straight guy, actually. Uh, and also, Wes Montgomery right. never touched right. any of that stuff. Um, and right. so there were people that were about that were tremendous. And uh, But Phil was, there it was. He was. I, I remember I got this picture of him leaning against the wall waiting to come on with us, you know, and he looked just <laughs> scary. Uh, so it was a lesson. I'd started the band, Trinity, and I, which was just a trio, ha Hammond organ trio. And within about a couple of months, um, 
I was playing in Manchester, a place called the, the Twisted Wheel. Mm. Or everybody played there, you know. And it was also another one that was open till about two o'clock in the morning. And uh, in the break, a guy comes up and he says, hi, I know, hi. Um, I wonder whether you'd like to come and talk to my managers. I'm Long John mm. Baldry. He was like a, a household name. And so I said, sure, I'll come and, you know, talk to whoever you want. And uh, they said, look, the Hoochie Coochie men, and that was John's band, they're out of control. <laughs> John can't stand it anymore. He can't control these boys, you know. He says, I, I'm, we're looking for somebody who could actually put a, put a band together and make him come to rehearsals, you know, and make him get ready on time to get to the gigs. And I went, I was pretty, you know, straight on about all that stuff. So I said, well, can I pick the band? And they said, yes. Uh, John wanted one of his pals. And uh, I said, well, okay. It was Rod Stewart. What? Rod was like a guy that flitted around and in the scene at that time, you know, and sat in with different people, sat in, sat in with me. And uh, I said, well, I'd just done some recording for a lady called uh, Julie Driscoll, and she's got a hell of a voice. And she's working for my manager, answering Yardbirds fan mail, and she deserves a lot better than that, I can tell you, you know. So I said, what about if we add her? They said, well, how would that work? I said, well... The way it would work is I'd go on and I'd play a couple of Jimmy Smith things or whatever, and then Julie would come on and I would, you know, accompany her, singing whatever it was. She was in, totally into, like, Nina Simone and all sorts of people like Aretha Franklin. And and then Rod could come on and Rod could do whatever the hell he liked and we could both sing back up for Rod. And then... Baldry would come and come on as the mm. as the king star, and um, we would all be able to sing back up for him. You know, we'd be able to do some gospel stuff and you know whatever. And they they thought about that for about <laughs> half a minute. I said, "Well, um, yeah, well, we could take a shot at that." So I said to Baldur's, "Said, what do you think, then, John?" <laughs> and he said, "That's not going with me, mate." The Steam Packet was launched. Quite a lineup, yes. you know, you, John Baldry, Rod Stewart, Julie Driscoll. So this, this sort of brief burst of Steam, run out of Steam, as it were, and um, you and Julie then go on yeah. with a new bass player and form Trinity, right? And tell us about that. The uh, Steam Packet kind of fell apart at one point. We went out to Saint-Tropez to play during the summertime, and uh, John tried to drink the whole of the wine harvest <laughs> for the year. <laughs> and so we had, we had four, four times we were on during the night, and uh, he didn't make it to uh, the, the last right. two. We were on our own. And so there was Julie, and there was uh, my rhythm section, and so... Trinity was, you know, was that when went on from there. And Julie would bring stuff from like Donovan and, you know, and, and people like that. And, and, you know, and say, well, I want to sing this, but, you know, can you do something, do your thing on it? And so I would think, oh, man, I'd go home and, you know, try and figure out how to do it uh, for us. 
And uh, suddenly the Bob Dylan tapes appeared. Basement tape. Dylan's recorded, done very rough demos of a whole bunch of songs, which he's intending or his publishers are intending other people to do. So it gets sent round, doesn't it? This, I mean, it became like a bootleg. Yeah. And, and various people sort of pick tracks which they're going to do. And so by the time right. it got to you guys, there was just two tracks left, Wheels on Fire and one more. Two tracks right. left. And uh, I think Manfred Mann got it first. And so, you know, <laughs> was the Mighty Quinn was a big hit for Anyway, so, you know, I had this, this thing, you know, does your memory sound you well? And it goes along and it's just him playing guitar and a bass player, you know, and we listened to it. I said, well, that's a... I could make a great like album track yeah. out of that, but I don't think that's mm. a single. So I went home and I tried to arrange this damn thing, you know. <laughs> and it was funny because I tried putting rock beats to it and stuff, and it it just didn't work at all. And then I I thought, well, maybe it's too fast and slowed it down and and uh because the the, uh, the lyrics were quite psychedelic mm. which was all the rage at the time you know and um in the end i said well i'm a jazz mm. player he's playing four in the bar i'm gonna keep that and i'm gonna maybe do this like a march mm. i when we went in the studio i put the track down kind of like that uh added some strings and and a solo, and uh, and Julie came in and did that amazing. <laughs> and incredible. Yeah. So when, when I listened to it, I went, well, boy, that's changed. I still thought that that wasn't, that wasn't a single. You were wrong. Yes, completely. <laughs> Absolute <laughs> massive hit, right? If your memory serves you well, we were gonna meet again and wait. So I'm going to unpack all my Sit before it gets too late No man alive Will come to you With another tale to tell But you know that we shall meet again If your memory serves you
Well, also, I mean, it was the right time, wasn't it? It was a melting pot when the Beatles, of course, you know, mixing all sorts of sounds and all sorts of styles with recording right. techniques, cutting it all up together. So by this stage, you become also a session player, right, as well. So you're doing all the live circuits. Yeah. You're a sort of in-demand in yeah. session player, and you've gone on to play with virtually everybody, right? So, but just tell us about your London life at the time. Where were you living? How, what were you... What, where were you? Where were you buying your clothes? What did you look like? You must have, because you must yeah. have been by this stage the the, the dude about yeah. time. Right? Well, we. I, I was living in Shepherd's Bush, right? Still, and I used to go up to the Chelsea Antique Market, you know, and we'd, have, we'd go up there and scour through what they'd got, and um, everybody dressed out of that. If you look at the Beatles stuff, mm. we we used to see each other fairly regularly. I mean, uh, Paul McCartney and Ringo used to come to this little club called Pink Elef Elephant or something like that in German Street, you know, and uh, uh, and when we were playing. And then one day one guy, one guy came up and said, this guy's got a tremendous voice, man. He's just made a single, you know, and he'd like to sit in with you. And I said, oh, here we go. I said, well, look, send him up here. Let me look at him. <laughs> this guy comes up. I said, where are you from, mate? And he said, oh, I'm from Wales. I said, what are you doing over there? He says, well, I've been working in the, the working men's clubs at the miners, their club, you know. He says, but I just made this single, you know, if that doesn't go, he says, I'm, I'm going back to Wales, you know. And I, he seemed to be a really nice guy. I just said, he went, what do you want to sing? And he says, do you know uh, Lucy? Yeah, I think so, you know. So I, I you know, and he opens his mouth, man, and we all went, oh. Oh no, what? And it was, and what's your name, mate? And I was like, Tom Jones. <laughs> uh, two weeks later, man, bang, there was number, number one. Was that the green, green grass <laughs> of home, was it? Yeah. And so he had a right. TV show and he booked us. Right. And when we arrived, he was, he had a, you know, a handful of like champagne flutes and a, and a bottle of champagne. And he said, hello, Brian. And I said, hello, Tom. I said, I see you never went back to the uh, <laughs> miners' clubs then, you know. <laughs> Do you still see him? Yeah. Good. Tell us about um, Hendrix. You sort of narrowly avoided being in a band with him, right? I was I was called by Chaz Chandler, who was the bass player for The Animals, but he'd gone into management with a guy called Mike Jeffrey, who I considered to be the greatest crook <laughs> on the London scene, you know. So I wouldn't didn't want anything to do with him. But... Um, Chaz said, please come up and talk to us, you know. So I said, okay, I went up and sat there. And he said, we've brought this amazing guitar player from New York. And I said, yeah. He said, we want him to front your band. I said, well, um, that's very nice of you, but um, I actually have a guitar player, you know, uh, and also Julie Driscoll fronts my band. Mm -hmm. You know, Jeffrey is sitting there with dark glasses on and, you know, I said to, to Chaz, on Thursday, we're playing at a club called the Cromwellian in Crom Cromwell Road. That was another one where you could drink late and everybody who's who was was there, you know. So I said, if you, if you want to bring him along, he can sit in with the band and it, it'll be like a kind of showcase for it in front of everybody. So Thursday comes up. And I'm introduced to Jimmy. I don't know any of anything about his background or anything. Seemed like a really nice guy. And I said, uh, 
what do you want to play, man? I says, can you play this this chord sequence? You know, and he plays the chord sequence for me. And it was for Hey Joe. I didn't know Hey Joe until later. Yeah, that sounds good. You know, why don't you count us in then? Eric Clapton was in the audience, Jeff Beck. I mean, loads of guitar players. And Jimmy started to play, did the whole number with the thing behind his back and playing with his teeth in the middle of it all. It was like ridiculous. Clapton and our bevy of guitar players, you know, they were pretty hot at the time. They were really good players, but they weren't quite themselves yet. Mm. Because we're all listening to American music. So they must have been a bit intimidated. Clapton apparently went home and said, well, that's it, isn't it? You know, <laughs> back to the drawing board. <laughs> as far as Jimmy was concerned, I never heard anybody like that. It was something really new for me in guitar playing and uh, when did you last see him moth of the flame wasn't he you burnt out so quickly but he was around in london for quite a bit wasn't he yeah and, um, well jimmy would come around and find out where we were playing and come and sit in with us you know and uh i we had julie and i had a number one in france and, and we were going to play in paris at a place uh was a theater uh, and I stood in the in in, in the uh, the wings because Jimmy was opening for us, being unknown, you know. So I watched that and I thought, wow, this guy is like incredible, you know. He's gonna be, this guy's going to be a big star. And I think about eighteen months afterwards, I opened for him hmm. at the same place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know he was. It was amazing. And then I, I didn't see him for, I, I don't know, a couple of years. And the next time I saw him, um, I got a call from John McLaughlin. I was in New York and uh, John said, listen, I'm mixing my, uh, mixing my new album and uh, I'm sure you'll like it. Do you want to come to the studio? I said, sure. So I went along to the studio. When I heard the first track, it was... Uh, Dragon song, and I went. Oh, God, I've I've got to I've got to I've got to play that, you know. <laughs> and then the door opened, and in came Jimmy with his mm. girlfriend. They looked terrible, right? You know, and uh, and also Mike Jeffrey and his his uh, engineer treated Jimmy like you know in a really horrible way, you know, like. You're done. This is the new guy, you know, mm. well, like, like that. And so, you know, I said to Jimmy, hey, can't, can't we go outside and talk? Mm. So we went outside the studio. And when I saw him in the light, I mean, his flesh was like grey. Mm. So he said, could you stay and make an album with me? Yeah. And I said, well, Jim, I'd love to do that. But I said, I'm sorry, I'm terribly sorry, but I can't. I can't just drop everything. Any, how long would it take you to do it? Because I was used to making albums in like two days, you know. And he said, about three months. You know, but anyway, he invited me to have a look at his studio the next morning. And at that meeting he, uh, outside he, the uh, studio, he pulled out this silver paper mm. with brown stuff on it. And, and he was about to take a sniff of it. And he offered it to me. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Brian, here you are, man. And I said, wait a minute. This is what I never forget. You know, I said to him, Jim, you've got to stop taking that stuff, man, because if you don't, 
it's going to kill you in the end, you know. And he said, well, I need a lot more people around me like you. Within about six months or so, he was gone. I just thought to myself, well, that is really sad. The amount of music that we could have made, Hmm. he could have kind of like inspired people to play with anybody. What a shame, man. A great artist. A great artist. To go back to you and Julie, you were quite revolutionary as well, you know, at the time, weren't you? Because you were mixing jazz and R&B, which you'd been at, and then she was bringing in the rock and folk as well, right? So you had this kind of psychedelic fusion thing going on. You had this huge hit as well when you're in the States and stuff. So what happened? Well, basically, man, you know, dodging between Ronnie Scott's, where I'm playing straight out, straight ahead jazz, and then going over to the Flamingo and mixing with all our friends over there. Um, what I what I wanted to do is to make a bridge, mm. if possible, between the jazz and the and the rock world because I realised that there were amazing ideas happening in the jazz side that could be filtered down to help the uh, the people in uh, in you know in the other side to develop i don't know but mm. that was it, it was part of the bridge so that and, and to say that hey you know music's music mm. um and if it's good it's good and if it isn't good throw it away uh that's that was basically what it was all about you know and i was heading that way and the reason we had a you know the the first hits but what happened was the record company would lean on you Mm. to do the same thing again Mm. they could you know and i didn't want to do that because i i thought well i mean that's the death of the art in whatever we're doing and um so i started the uh, oblivion express and a it came, <laughs> the name came because I thought to myself, well, now you're going to wade against the commercial tide mm. and it may be your quickest way to oblivion. That wasn't quite what happened though, was it? No, it wasn't. No. <laughs> I mean, and Julie obviously got so fed up with the whole thing that she sort of disappeared for a while, didn't she? But Oblivion Express, you form it. That thing that we talked about is this kind of spirit, the spirit of music, the muse that's been moving you all this time. I mean, you really sort of let go into it then, didn't you? And you've made all these albums, you've toured, you've collaborated with loads of people. You got together with Julie again, you played with Eric Burden again. You know, you, you just kept going, right, all the way through the 70s and the 80s, even when, as you've said, you know, like, you know, organ-based jazz and R&B went out of fashion for some time. Right. But then, you know, in the, the 90s, and you're hailed as the godfather right. of us in jazz, right? I was looking on that as um, I'm not only kind of learning mm. lessons out of the business side of the of, of music, but I'm pushing ahead mm. with with my own kind of playing and, mm. uh, uh, and and writing stuff that is off the wall and, uh, you know, managing to get away with it. Thousands of gigs, you know, lots of collaborations and records. You've also been sampled a lot, right, you know, by hip-hop yes. artists. You know, you settled in the States. Your wife's Italian. And what I love about your story as well is there's that family... Right from back from the beginning, you know, we're talking about your early days in, in Shepherd's Bush. Family's been really important. You know, you toured Karma on drums. Your daughter's singing for you. That whole family thing has been a really important part of your life too, hasn't it? Absolutely. 
because I realized that I'd learned so much touring and being, being you know, in, uh, in, in the music itself that um, that would be lessons for all of them, you know, and uh, I heard... Uh, We've got to this point, oh, yeah. you've got this new archival series orga incorporated, it's this epic collection of your, your stuff over five decades, isn't it? That's going to be released by uh, K7 and Soul Bank Music, and that must be quite yeah. a good feeling to, to have it all collected together. Yeah. Brian, we're coming to the end, and... I wanted to say thank you so much. It's amazing to hear your stories and uh, also to hear how much music has moved you. When you think back, you know, at the age of 82, all the way to those early years at Shepherd's Bush, is it possible for you to kind of like sum it up? I mean, these wonderful signposts along the way. Music is one of those things, man. It's like taking a candle in the dark and the more you put it around, the more you realise how big the dark is. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, I never get to the end of it. Keep burning your candle, Brian. Thanks a lot, man. You know, it's my pleasure, Stephen, and uh, I hope we get to talk together again. Wow, I hope so too, I really do. Um, Brian is he's lovely, you can tell from that, and this archival series, or Augur Incorporated, you know, massive vinyl CD set um, covering his extraordinary career with loads of just great groovy cool stuff on it that's released by Soul Bank Music on IK7 thanks very much to Greg Borman Greg takes care of Brian and his music related stuff and he introduced us and also to Karma Orga who is Brian's son and drummer uh, who facilitated this Thanks, of course, to Soho Radio and to uh, you guys. Um, the people have been writing in with suggestions, as I mentioned before. Chris, thank you very much for your latest about Ludbrook Grove. Absolutely. James Younger, Nigel Spencer, uh, John Sinclair, of course, Ronnie, as ever. Anybody else who's been pinging in um, with thoughts and suggestions, we really appreciate that. And, of course, we will be back next time with more stories from the counterculture from the underground from the other side in the meantime i thought we'd finish with another tune by brian this is walking featuring jimmy page probably heard of him joe harry and of course sunny boy williams see you later
walk with me, child. I won't explain. But I don't want my love to be in vain. Well, walk with me, baby. Just one more time. Walk, we got a cute little walk, we got a cute little walk, we walk on, walk on, walk on, baby. 